This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Christopher Rice. Well, that's not how you sounded three seconds ago. <laughs> and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> and you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher <laughs> and Eric. Math came up and Christopher oh. has just completely become oh, unhinged. Oh my God, I completely misnumbered our episodes and our script. And then it was this long explanation of how arithmetic and counting works. And I got confused and hostile. And I ran out of the studio. I slammed the door. I said, I can't work like this with you people. And now I'm back. And then he came back because nobody came looking for it. <laughs> for about five minutes, he thought, well, they're not coming out. That didn't play it. That didn't work out. But before that, we were really in deep discussion of why we didn't put the 20-minute discussion of scented candles in the studio on the episode. I think that could have made a great kind of scented candle well, intro. We can still talk about scented candles. I don't see that you and I are ever at a loss to discuss scented candles he, at length. Here's my, my warning. Now a warning. Now a warning. If we start, we might not stop. And I think we're actually, we're doing a a special edition show, right? Oh, my God. A supersized nightmare of a true crime special. So I'm not sure if we have time for scented candles. We'll save it for another episode or write into us about scented candles and we'll 
you know, never see your post. <laughs> <laughs> we're still working we're on that giveaway. We're, we're still, still working on we're that still giveaway. We're still trying to remember what we were supposed to give away and who it goes to. <laughs> no, we haven't even gotten to the point where this is the stage we're at with our giveaway. And this was from, I think, our Say Gay episode. We were going to pick winners and send you all copies of everything all the pieces of media that we thought were so important to us as young gay all of men. the most important gay stuff in the world. We're now at the spot where all of the items are coming from different Amazon vendors, so the giveaway packages are not complete yet. I've placed the order. We've had to rent an apartment in, in Chicago <laughs> because it's a central hub for all of those things to come, and we can't find time on our calendars to go to Chicago to get no, them. So we don't. we're going to have to hire somebody to go to Chicago to get the things and mail them out, and by then we won't remember who won the prize. And that's our long way of saying if you are a podcast producer and you're looking for a gig— Please write to us because we could use one. We really, yeah, we've really, that, that's been the thing, the great, oh. I actually, there was a point early on when we were still doing the dinner show, party show, the dinner show, that's nice. That's um, our next get show. Get the name of your own show wrong, Eric. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with Carlene and Ed Whistle. Um, <laughs> Who were they? You and me. <laughs> All right, go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm um, laughing interruptingly. Yeah, the, I actually contacted former producers that I had worked with to say, I'm so sorry, and yes. thank you so much for yeah. everything that you did. I had no idea. I really, I always liked you, but I should have been more appreciative. Yes. I didn't say I always liked you to everybody that I contacted, well, this is, but when I did, when it was true. This is a little bit easier because we're not live and we don't have a difficult celebrity coming into the studio every week like we did with our last show. If you don't, count, if you don't count us. If you don't count Eric. <laughs> <laughs> all right, look, we don't have time. We don't have time for all this Stop bringing up all these other things. This chit-chat. And let's just say we will do a scented focus, candle. Focus, Christopher. We'll you do, need to focus. We'll do a scented candle podcast at some point. We're promising it now. It's like the giveaway. It'll happen in three years when we remember. To do it <laughs> when we launch our scented candle line with what is it? New baby. That's Christopher's New favorite. Those are our, our white trash candle smells. That you can find that on our very first episode of the dinner party show. Right. Okay. Enough. Enough joy. Is it? Is it? Enough happiness. Well, yeah. This will be the end of that if we oh, start talking about my this. God. Yeah. So this is a what we're doing today is a true crime special edition and different from True Crime TV Club because we bring you a multi-episode series in one episode of our podcast. This is two hour and a half episodes, if yes. I remember correctly. Okay. The special is called The Clown and the Candy Man. It's available on Discovery Plus. Again, usual disclaimer. You should be able to, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, experience fully our podcast without going and watching the special because we or serve it up for you. can you. watch the special. And it's also at ID Files or whatever it is. So yeah. you can watch it for free with commercials or you can watch it on Discovery Plus, which I just love Discovery Plus. Yes, we love Discovery Plus. And if Hulu could please fix their app and add um, the thing about Harry to their fucking inventory, that mm -hmm. would be great because otherwise they're just hopeless. Yes, indeed. Okay. So for those of you out there on I our just Facebook, like to get that in there as for those of you out there on our Facebook page, this is very important to say. I want to get this in before we start. We have had a lot of requests for John Wayne Gacy content. So this had better take care this of it. This better take care of it. Because we're not doing this again Be for, a, for long a long time, time, maybe ever. For a long time. And there is a new Gacy show on Netflix, and it's gonna be a while before we can and do it. And that's great. You you should watch it. Um yeah. So <laughs> let's be sure to alienate our loyal listeners at the I'm, upfront. I'm really not sure that I could. Yeah, like this is really going to 
fill my John Wayne Gacy quota for a long time. That he would be the clown in The Clown and the Candyman. And just because he wasn't horrible enough, what do you know? There's somebody almost as bad or maybe even worse who they called the Candyman, who was in Houston just a couple of years before John Wayne Gacy. And I'd never really heard of him until I had not either. Christopher started pointing all this shit out. Uh, well, and what what we learned and, and then I did I pulled a total Anne Rice and told Christopher that we should we needed to watch this series that right. he'd apparently been pitching to me. <laughs> that was my and mother's used to, thing. She used to do that to me all the time. I would tell her forty five times, Oh, you should really watch she would say, I need a new mystery show and I would say, Well, I'm love so and so and then she would say, I need a new mystery show and I would say it again and then I would go out for a visit and she would say Oh, Eric, I found the most amazing new mystery show, and right. it would be the show that I'd been telling her about for the last two months while mm-hmm. she asked me. I, I miss telling her. There are new Broken Wind mysteries, Anne. That's great. That's great. That's a great show. That's a great show. She did love her mysteries she towards did. the end of her life. And we loved sharing them with each other. Okay. So from one cheerful topic to another, The Clown and the Candyman. Let me just say this. When I read the synopsis for the show, because they're pretty upfront, they say, They're going to present a theory that these two notorious serial killers, John Wayne Gacy and Dean Corll, were somehow interconnected. And what I thought was this might turn out to be some high-flown QAnon bullshit. So that was the question that I went into the special with, and we can talk later about whether or not that was the case once we get into it. But they really sort of start right off. There's not a slow lead-in. They say um, they introduce us to this man, Dean Corll, who was a notorious serial killer in the Houston area? They known actually as the start Candyman. with his murder, right? Right, because the case of Dean Coral was really blown open by Dean Coral's murder. Nobody really knew what was going on until Dean Coral himself was shot um, by a young man who I believe was a teenager at the time, who was hanging out with him in this kind of crash pad druggy house with another young man. Um, but I'll get into that in a second. But the special says up front. We're going to, over eight years, these two men cumulatively, excuse me, killed over 60 boys. So they're making it sound right away like John Wayne Gacy and Dean Coral. Dean Coral is who killed 60. Not the person who killed Dean Coral. Not the person who killed Dean Coral. And the series says we're going to investigate evidence that they were linked by a pedophile ring, which I had never heard before. I'd heard a lot about John Wayne Gacy. Horrible, horrible. Absolutely, story. everybody did. Both yeah. of the, that case really was electric when it happened. It was really I don't know why what the difference was, but the coverage had somehow shifted, or maybe it was its proximity to Chicago, mm. which was less of a cow town than right. Houston was at the time, or right. whatever. I don't know what the the difference was, but everybody heard about uh, John Wayne Gacy. That was quite the. The sensation, and honestly, you know, I, just a couple of years earlier, and I don't remember. You didn't hear a word about I Dean Coral. I never, I had never heard of Dean Coral until this. I feel like we all, in a way, whether we knew it or not, heard of Dean Coral because I think you want some candy, little boy. This is the story that gives a ver- uh, voice to that horrible trope. Maybe, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I don't know if that. I, I guess that's possible. 
So the one of the main voices, uh, true crime writer at Texas Monthly, Skip Hollinsworth, is really, I think, the kind of key narrator. He's interviewed on camera, but he kind of narrates the Dean Coral story, I would say. Pretty much. Yeah. And he opens by saying when he first discovered it, he had never heard of it before either. Like, Absolutely. Uh, August 8th, 1973, 8.24 a.m., the Houston police get a phone call that bring them to an address at 22 Lamar Street. There they find three shaken teenagers— 17-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley, 19-year-old Tim Curley, and 15-year-old Rhonda Williams. And the teenagers are in possession of a 22 caliber gun. Uh, also interviewed is retired Pasadena police, and I believe that's a Houston suburb, not to be confused with the California city. Sidney Smith says that Henley tells the police as soon as they arrive that he shot a man named Dean Quarrel, and Dean's body is inside the house. Sure enough, in the house, the police discover his naked body. He has been shot six times. The house is full of torture materials and sexual devices, I believe is the term they use. And drugs and alcohol and just about anything else you can possibly imagine. It's really, yeah, it's yeah, a den. It's a den. Dean, we learn, is it, or was, excuse me, a 33-year-old lineman at the power company. His mother owned a candy store and a candy factory in the neighborhood. Uh, Bernie Milligan, a kid from the area, is also interviewed, and he describes how Dean would go to the playground and hand out pieces of candy and be greeted by the kids as the Candyman. So that's part of yeah, the Yeah, he was a beloved neighborhood figure. Everybody was very fond of Dean. He was charming and helpful and kind, and I, nobody thought, even at this point, nobody thought that mm -hmm. he was the monster that he was going to turn out to be. So it's a surprise when Henley tells the police that the murder of Dean was in self-defense. His story is that they were bagging, which I think this has a different name today. Huffing, I Huffing. believe is what I've heard it called. Yeah. But yeah. Sniffing acrylic spray out of a bag, essentially. They passed out. When they woke up, they were tied up. Dean Coral wanted Henley to have sex with the girl present. I assume that was Rhonda, uh, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, he wanted her uh, Henley to have sex with her while he had sex with the other young boy who was there. Coral threatened him with the gun, and so Henley agreed to the plan, but when he was set free, he shot Coral six times. And then, the more Henley is questioned, the more his story starts to expand, a story that they initially considered to be insane. But he says that Coral, this is Henley's, there are going to be gradations to Henley's confession, so this is like level two. Uh, he says that Coral confessed to Henley that he murdered all of these boys and buried them. And Henley says, I can take you to where he said he buried the boys. The cops first check out the names, because that's how detailed, apparently, Coral's confession to Henley was. Right. Um, and they discover that all of these boys are, in fact, missing, and some of them have been missing for years. Which is like, and again... This is one of those statements on the time. Like, there were no computers. People were not cross-checking these cases. And nobody had ever heard of anything like this before. Nobody. By 5.30 p.m. that day, Henley is taking the cops to find the bodies. They're in a locked boat shed. The cops break in. No need for a warrant, apparently, I guess, because Coral's dead. And they have—I don't know. What are they going to—yeah, what's he going to do about it? Right. This terrible smell hits them the minute they break in. They find an area where the ground is cracked and raised up. 
they find the first corpse of a young boy six to eight inches underground wrapped in plastic. I mean, that's like nothing. Yeah, not really trying. Uh, we're introduced to Danny James, who is a retired Houston police detective, and he starts to describe what the excavation was like. You'd hit a section of lime, and that's when you realize there was a body underneath it, and it was just body after body after body after body. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So the Houston police are excavating an enormous amount of corpses from this boat shed. And what's happening, because apparently nobody involved has any experience with this because it's a rare event, is that there are no police lines up. So the local news media is almost at the holes they're digging. I mean, with cameras angled on everything. Yeah, they're like walking around the the crime scene. Yeah. But again, I think it's because nobody... Quite knows what to do. This is yeah. a more innocent time, and I don't mean that I think that this had never happened before, but I don't think that the police had ever discovered that it was happening before. Right, right. And they're not even calling this serial murder. They're calling it mass murder. The term serial killing is not in the popular lexicon yet. Um, so... Meanwhile, the city of Houston is getting all of these details live on television. They're breaking in to local newscasts, and it looked like they were breaking in nationally, too. They show they show in the special. Oh, yeah, though. absolutely. Yeah. Garrett Utley was yeah. talking about it on the NBC Nightly News. So, yeah, it was it was happening, which means that I just wasn't paying attention. But it was also, what year was this? This was 1972, I believe. Yeah, so, you know, like early on, seventh grade, eighth grade, you know, somewhere along in there. So. 1973, actually, but, yeah, absolutely. Um, meanwhile, things are happening because of this media access that would probably never happen today. And one of them is that somebody has a car phone, which was a a rare item back then, but they allow Henley, whose murder of Coral started all of this or, or exposed all of this, I should say, to call his mother and issue this tearful confession as a news camera, sort of right in his face. Mama, I killed Dean. I killed Dean. And you hear her screaming in the background, what, what's going on? But also what's simultaneously happening is that Henley's confession is becoming more and more explicit. And I think by the end of this day, he has admitted to the police that Coral didn't just confess to him, that Henley was, in fact, a procurer for Coral. And a participant. And a participant. That's why I knew all those names. Yeah. Another teen from the same neighborhood turns himself in as the story breaks. His name is David Brooks. He's 18, and he says Henley isn't telling the whole story, that he wasn't an innocent bystander. Okay, this is maybe what I left out. Henley got his ass handed to him by an, by another accomplice. I'm a little stunned that uh, David Brooks turned himself in in this way. Like, I felt like there was maybe a piece of the story missing. Like, I was like, what inspired him 
did he think they were going to maybe he thought Henley would eventually crack and turn on him too anyway the point of the story is that by the end of this day or in the wake of uh, Brooks's uh, well, one confession, of the things that came out as this unfolds is by this point in time Brooks is actually married. Like, yeah. Brooks may have come forward to protect other people, like yeah. his own family. He was a child, maybe, I think, and, but certainly was married. I, yeah. It was like, oh my God. Like, it was because this had been going on for years. Yes. That's basically what we come to discover, right? Is that Dean Coral made contact with these two young men, Henley and Brooks, that he began grooming them, that he began giving them drugs. He began sort of slowly, sexually recruiting them. I, there were some aspects of the story, like, did he was Brooks not really gay or not really interested in sex with men, and he only did it because this kind neighbor named Dean Coral showed up and acted like a father figure? Yeah, he was like Dean's... He, he yeah. was like Brooks's father, was yeah. what the, was the impression that I got, which may have also been a part of why he turned himself in. Mm -hmm. the, the most chilling detail that... That I remember, I think it was from Henley, but maybe it was Brooks, where they said that he wanted to get out of it. He wanted to leave, and the mom wouldn't let him because they needed the $200 that he got for every boy. Like, that's like it was mm -hmm. this was a job. Yeah. They worked for this guy as his evil henchman, and yeah. this kind of so it was a very sort of. Protracted, but but in many ways they were also young men who had been recruited and indoctrinated in a way that they were looking for Coral's approval. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Coral was acting like what we now understand to be the classic child molester. He was targeting young boys from strained, broken homes who needed some sort of older parental figure. He was giving them financial support, as you just said. And yeah, he was. It had gotten to a point with both these young men that he said, I'll give you $200 if you go out and find a boy for me to molest and murder. That was really what he was doing. They literally went around in a white van. I mean, so many of the scary serial killer tropes, I think, come from this story. White van, do you want some candy, little boy? Like, it's all... I was like, wow. And he was the same guy. He would also go over to the boy's house for dinner with their moms. And, right. Like, he fixed the other one of their mom's cars while right. he was there and you know like he was that kind of like there was no sense of it it was this complete almost normalization of this completely out of control insane hideous evil like it was hard for me to wrap my head around how he even got there like mm -hmm. he didn't come from a terrible background he was right. not abused his mother was lovely they the candy factory, like, it was like, where did he suddenly become? Well, you know, and we do get some of his backstory. Dean Coral grew up in Indiana and Tennessee. His dad was an electrician. They moved to Texas in 1962. That's when the family opened a candy shop. He went to high school, seemed to be a well-adjusted student, played trombone in the band. He was well-liked, decent grades. You're right. He went into the Army. He became a radio operations expert. He returned to Houston. He worked for his mom. That's when he became the candy man because he was affiliated with her right. company and factory. The detail that they do give us is his mom gets divorced because she marries this merchant marine. And he allegedly accuses Dean of being a homosexual to her. And she's so angry she divorces the guy and moves. But is that really this? Is that really 
what he said, or did he say he's being weird around kids? You know what I mean? Like, there's one thing to say, I think you're son's gay and there's other it's another thing to say he's spending a lot of time with underage men and we don't really know what he's doing you know like and i think that we're also looking at a time period where the two things were conflated like it it's one of the things that i hate about ever addressing these stories it's one of the reasons i've been reluctant to do the john wayne gacy thing yeah like i actually for most of my life have not interacted with the children of my friends because of this old right. long held prejudice yeah that somehow that like i just it is one of the things that i always marvel at with the, i can't think of anybody less sexually attractive than children mm-hmm. like it's like saying i want to have sex with the dog or yeah, right. with the car like I just, there's not a sexual component for children. Mm-hmm. I don't understand it. It is a very, I think, specific yeah. kind of, and I think what's often the case with child molesters is that it doesn't really make any difference to the child molester if it's a boy or a girl, that right. it's just simply a child, that right. that's what they're att- attracted to, I, I I guess. I Again, I don't have, I'm not a psychiatrist or anything, so I don't have any mm-hmm. real deep understanding about it but i think that there may have been at this point in time still a lot of that like this is i think the point at which isn't it 1973 when the psychiatric community actually said yeah being gay is not a mental illness condition it was either that or 72 i think yeah. i think this was right around the time i, I had the same re- i'm glad you said that because as i was watching this my pulse started to go up in a way that it doesn't usually i mean it's always elevated with i think what stories. this didn't address was that they were targeting gay kids. Yes, absolutely. Like, I think that's what was happening, and they, that never really gets covered in this kind of stuff. Is and that- as we talked about on a previous episode, the reaction I started to have as a gay man was like, the more we talked about teenagers and young people being abused who were clearly gay, who clearly had no options for being with other boys, that they were going out into these dangerous situations and falling prey to older men who were full-on pedophiles, you know, and the way that whole terrible cycle fueled this vicious trope of gay men when the truth was what was really driving it is that young gay people had nowhere to be themselves or to they be with other young be gay, gay people. Right. That is so woven all through the story, and it was so upsetting to me to, to see it on display. And even anyway. for even for to some degree for to the people, the terrible people in the story, yeah. like there was there was no sense that they could just be gay people. Yeah. And it's like because at this time in history, um, no, no gay adults who are who are well adjusted are being loudly and publicly out on television. So if there's going to be any reporting on same-sex anything, it's going to be about perversity and criminals who are being hauled in front of this. It's going to be about these motherfuckers. Because they still think it's a criminal yeah. thing. They're, yeah. we're, they're still treating gay people. So it all gets lumped in together. And then yeah. you add that to the sort of um, sexual outlaw mentality that is growing in the gay community itself, and it turns into this sort of, you know, if you put people outside of society their behavior is, of course, going to be antisocial because right. you're not including them. Like, mm-hmm. it, it was a very, I think, confusing yeah. time period. And and it, it contributed to a lot of people's misunderstandings and misconceptions in and around who gay people actually are. Right. It's the reason that one of the greatest strides forward that we have made as a community is that 
people started coming out and right. you, know, you realized that it was just your uncle or the guy who worked at the grocery store or mm-hmm. your third grade civics teacher or whatever it was, you know, like it was, these were just ordinary people who were already part of your life. And you were like, well, that's, he's not a monster. He's lives right down the street. Like I, yeah, you know, like people began to see that gay people weren't this terrible vision of what was being put forward as, yeah, as gay people. Anyway, the, anyway, there's another, there's another big piece of this story that beyond that. And we'll, I'm sure we'll get back to that because there's more of that uh, coming, but um, the manner in which the sudden disappearances of young people were investigated in this time was, was bullshit. Deeply, deeply flawed. Um, <laughs> you were, if you, and I think this had to do with the fact that we were talking about boys. Like, if your totally. if your son, regardless of whether or not they were underage, fourteen, thirteen, if they disappeared, they were just sort of assumed to be a runaway. The case was referred to a juvenile division in Houston, at least, that had almost no connection to the homicide department. Um, they just basically told parents, we're sh- it's the 60s, it's the 70s, it's the hippie era. People are running away all the time. They probably went to California. They probably went to New York. And parents are sitting there going, he was at the swimming pool. As in one case, these two boys went to the local swimming pool. Yeah, they pool, were still in their swimsuits walking like, back from the swimming pool and never were never seen again. Yeah. The, the chief of police for Houston, in one of the worst public relations moves I've ever seen, decides to get on TV in the wake of this discovery that all these boys had gone missing and nobody was really doing anything about it and saying, well, these boys wouldn't have gone missing if these parents had been doing their job. It's like, wow. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah, so. because because the city, you know, pays them annually to raise these kids. Oh, wait, that's you. They pay <laughs> you annually to enforce the law and protect the citizenry, to protect and serve, you jackass. Like, yeah. it was just like, uh, yeah, par- par- parenting is not a salaried position. Being a police officer actually is dipshit. Yeah. But, yeah, I just I – do, I think people just simply didn't know what to say because they didn't know how to process – this no as a phenomena that this has even happened and it is horrific six days after dean's murder yeah there were 27 sure. bodies had been discovered right and 22 of them grew up in the same neighborhood called the heights the same neighborhood now if today if 22 young men went disappearing or disappeared excuse me from the same neighborhood i don't want to rush into saying that it would be better like i hope yeah. Today, if 22 people went, but like we dealt with it with the Atlanta child murders, it was like, mm. or would they? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's like, I hope to, I hope that's true, but I would not rush into claiming it. Okay. So I won't claim it. I think what would happen is we, people would be less stunned when it was discovered that this, something like this was happening. Okay. But, okay, and there's this statistic too, that maybe balances it out a bit between 1971 and 1973, 400 kids were reported missing from the Heights. Um, did they all become victims of a serial killer? We don't know. We know 28 of them did, but you can see how the police would get. Yeah. A view of like, yeah, they just, you, this is a terrible neighborhood and the parents are all, you know, working class drunks who come home and beat the kids and they get to be 15 and they're like, yeah, yeah I'm out of here, dude. I can get a construction job in San Antonio, see ya. Yeah. Um, and they're gone. Yeah. There's a lot of sorted details. I don't know if we want to get into all I of them. I think the reason, I think we're coming up on the reason that this case did not become the national sensation that John Wayne Gacy became is because... He was already dead. And yeah. so they just blamed him for the crimes. Yeah. And his henchmen were 
you know, tried and imprisoned, but it wasn't the same thing. And so you didn't get the kind of trial coverage that would have made it into the spectacle that uh, the clown became. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash thedinnerpartyshow. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio Um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. And now, the clown from John Wayne Gacy. For all of you out there who wanted to talk about John Wayne Gacy, this is it. What do you remember about this story being on TV when you were a young person? I remember, I kept trying to like, I thought I would get, there would be a refresher. I remember somebody describing in detail the killing of a particular person. Like, the person actually saying, what are you doing, or whatever. It was a, mm-hmm. it was like somebody else who was a part of whatever it was. And I even wondered if I wasn't conflating the Candyman mm. with this. Mm-hmm. when I Because I remember it as being part of the John Wayne Gacy trial and somebody being killed and, at, you know, pleading with somebody... Um, and right. the the person who was present describing the that's how that's, old were you when you were hearing this? You know, like I was in a freshman in high school, something okay. like that. I was yeah. young and not particularly, you know, like the world was bad, but like mm-hmm. my God, yeah, yeah, it was so horrific. And there was the thing with like. It seemed clearer to me at the time, and maybe it was just because it was me, but it seemed clearer to me that it was young gay people who were being targeted. That mm-hmm. seemed less mm-hmm. vague like yeah. than this. This did not make that point, but it seemed to me at the time that that was the case, that the, that was how they were being targeted, right. was that they were 
cruising different. And I think that was more the case with John Wayne Gacy. They were out selling themselves, cruising areas that were whatever. There was a the, the ironically the ages were not that far off between the Candyman and John Wayne Gacy. But you're correct. The manner in which the victims were found. Gacy, it turns out, was targeting teenage runaways in gay cruising areas in urban parts of Chicago, whereas the Candyman was plucking boys up off the street in suburban Houston when they were on their way home from the swimming pool in the yeah. school. I, you know, doesn't really matter. The victims are all horrible. Still victims, hideous, you know? but it was it was a different kind of aesthetic, and that was the thing that I remember being being my impression of it like okay. yeah. that 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 they were at risk because they were gay because they were out so i'm sorry to report that the gacy story did not come to everyone's attention because of the murder of john wayne gacy as with, it did with dean coral on december 11th <laughs> 1978 at 11:30 p.m. two parents walk into the deplaines police station outside chicago and they want to report the disappearance of their son rob peast who is a teenager who was working part-time as a stock boy at a pharmacy in the area. He had been working the day shift. Mike Albrecht is interviewed. He's a retired De Plains police chief detective. Uh, he adds the detail that it was actually the mother's birthday, so for the young man to go missing on the eve of her birthday, I believe, was how I understood it, was very weird and in very fact, out of character. he said, I'll be right back. Yeah. She was there to pick him up or something. Like, they were getting ready to do the next thing. And he said, I've got to go this see this guy about a job, and then I'll be right back. And they never saw him again. The same attitude towards missing persons cases of young people prevails in Chicago as did in Houston. Despite the fact yeah. that this doesn't sound anything like he ran away. Like he was in the midst of an interaction with his mom when he went missing. What we have here are two parents who were not going to stop looking for their kid and they don't. At all. They look all night. They show up at the police station the next morning. They say this is really suspicious. Uh, they say Rob is not a problem child. He was a good student. We are not a dysfunctional family. Uh, we we love each other. The cops are seeing the family bonds. Um, they begin looking into who was present at the drugstore, and they discover, sure enough, a contractor named John Wayne Gacy was in conversations with the owner, I think, about doing some work on the premises. It turns out Gacy is an ex-con out of Iowa with a criminal history of sodomizing children. And because there was no sex offender registry at the time, this took more effort to find out than it would today. And he was convicted of handcuffing them to the legs of a pool table and sodomizing them. And for this, he served 18 months on a 10-year sentence. The cops confront him. They find him to be dirty and unshaven. They've gone to his home where he is uncooperative. <laughs> such a weird detail. I, I don't know. It's like if you surprise someone at your house, there was way more to get Gacy on than he was dirty and unshaven. I just there are a lot of dirty people in the world. Such a strange detail, yeah. but they really drew a line under that. I was like, okay, sure. I think when we started to get into a discussion of what the house was like behind him, it was like he fit in with the horrifying condition of the house. Yeah, you know? there was, it was, yeah, it was. Yeah. But he finds out they don't have a search warrant and they're not coming in. So they were, must have been reacting to what they could see over his dirty back, which was. Weird looking. They say it's very weird. The halls are painted dark brown with strange stripes, and there are clown paintings everywhere, which they show, which are horrifying. Um, they're just clown paintings. They're horrifying. Clowns are just terrifying. I, if you think clowns are terrifying, they're, but they're terrifying. really just paintings of clowns. They're 
whatever. So this is maybe a flaw in my notes, but I guess they get a search warrant and they come back pretty quickly because the cops interviewed then begin describing the interior of the house in some detail. Sex toys everywhere, sex books everywhere. Again, the presence of sex books is not indicative of a serial killer, speaking of someone who writes sex books. Um, in the closet off the front room, they find a trap door leading to a crawl space. <laughs> um, but they look around and they don't really see anything. But they find a photo receipt from the pharmacy. They find handcuffs and they find a lot of police badges, which are not real. And a lot of strange things that don't belong to John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. Like some kid's high school ring and somebody's mm -hmm. ID card and somebody's right. jewelry and somebody's that are like, this is really, it's this strange collection of items. So they're, they discover there are two layers to John Wayne Gacy's past. There's the conviction that they discovered right off, but then they discover he's beloved locally and is very active in uh, democratic politics and is a precinct captain and knows everybody in town and his neighbors really There's love him. There's a photograph of him with Rosalind Carter at yeah. some event that he was helping sell, you know, fundraise for or whatever. He's, yeah. Again, just like Quarrel, it's this, you know, upstanding member of the community that nobody sees in the way he also works as a clown. Yeah. Entertaining at what you call it, and is very committed to it. He has registered his makeup and his clown name, and explains how that works. And it, you know, like he's he's his own quirky person, but he's also very much a part of the community and not a threat, not seen as a threatening presence. But further in his past, he was working for an ambulance company, and his job was to pick up the remains of the deceased. And the, in Las Vegas? The company discovered, I can't remember, but they discovered that he was having sex with the bodies. Yeah, that's just really not, which is just uh -huh. unbelievable. It gets back to the thing that I was saying earlier. This has nothing to do with being gay. This guy was or sex. really fucked up. Yeah. Like, I don't know what this was about, but it had nothing to do. Like, yeah. And at the time, that wasn't the case. It was just all sort of lumped in together because gay people were still seen as being mentally ill by most people. Um, they have discovered, uh, the cops are staying on the case at this point, and they've discovered that Gacy offered Peace, the missing young man who started all this, a deal to get him a job with his contracting company. They're wondering if other men who might have disappeared in connection with Gacy were recruited in the same way. By December 14th, Rob has been missing for four days. Gacy is on round-the-clock surveillance. Okay, but I think it's worth saying. The police get a warrant. They come. They search. Right. They don't find anything. And so while they think he's suspicious, they kind of move on. Yeah. And But put him on... Surveillance. Constant, round-the-clock yeah. surveillance of absolutely everything that he does. And he starts socializing with the cops who are following him. He starts eating meals with them in restaurants. He's putting on a show for them. He starts performing heterosexuality for them. Oh, I love women. Women are amazing. You know, like all this sort of stuff. And he's been married and maybe even has children. Yeah, but oh, my God. Can you imagine being John Wayne Gacy's kid? Anyway. No, just can't. Um, and he claims he likes being a clown because he wants to feel up women. It's like an early Donald Trump defense. If I'm a, you're a clown, they let you do anything. You know, it's like, Jesus. <laughs> Um, December 16th. Fellow clowns. Five days have passed since uh, Rob Peast vanished. Uh, 
they they've located two guys who work two young guys who work for John Wayne Gacy who they think know more than are letting on and they're they're sort of starting to crack under the pressure. They're sick of the police following them. Right. Their names are Michael Rossi and David Cram. Initially they're not highly cooperative, but Rossi tells them that there was this guy who worked for Gacy previously and then one day he just didn't show up and he didn't pick up his paycheck. His name was Gregory Godzik. He was 17 years old. He disappeared on December 11th, 1976. Uh, two days after that, they find his car, his wallet, and his license. His mom go, went to Gacy's house to find out what happened, and Gacy claims, oh, I got a message from him. Yeah, he just kind of cut bait and ran, and I don't know. She says, well, can I hear the message? He goes, oh, I erased it. I erased it, yeah. So the turning point in all of this is a slip of paper that they find in John Wayne Gacy's trash, okay? They've previously established that before his disappearance, Rob Peast let a girl who worked at the pharmacy borrow his jacket. And I guess... Because she was cold. She had a photo receipt from a transaction that she stuffed in, in his pocket. Right. And, and then when he got his jacket back to go to John Wayne Gacy's house, mm-hmm. somehow the photo receipt wound up at John Wayne Gacy's house. So it didn't have anybody's name on it, but when they followed up and the photos came back, they were the photos of the young woman who had borrowed the jacket. And that made the connection that Peace had been in John Wayne Gacy's house. And so they go back to those young men who work for Gacy and they start to really put the screws to him. And the men admit, okay, we've been in his house and uh, he hired us to fix a sewage issue, like a drainage sewage issue um, in his house. So we were in there for a while, but we didn't see anything weird. And They they, just had us dig a bunch of trenches in his crawl space. And the cops asked them, this was amazing, if I'm going to look for a body on John Wayne Gacy's property, where should I look? And they say, the crawl space. Totally in the crawl space. We already dug all the graves there, so probably there. What sounds like simultaneous to this exchange, the cops following Gacy who is also starting to crack under the police surveillance, follow him to a drug deal. And they are, they're able to arrest him and bring him in on the drug charge. And then I guess they start going back to the house and they start digging. Oh, yeah. And it's just like the coral case. They hit... Immediately they yeah. start finding. They eventually pull up, because it's a crawl space, they eventually just pull up the floor in the house and dig up the whole underground in the house and they find just countless... And when they inform Gacy of this, who's in the police station, he says, I don't want you guys messing up my carpets, so I'm just going to draw you a map of where all the bodies are. And then he then confesses in chilling detail to 72 to murders, excuse me, that start in 1972. Misreading my own notes there. <laughs> uh, he claims the first one was a self act of self-defense after se- consensual sex with a man. And he claims he didn't call the cops about it because he had a sex record. But it inspired him to start cruising Chicago's gay sex area. One of them was uh, known as Bug House Square. He looked for victims there. All those police badges, he outfitted his car like it was a cop car. And now it's time to talk about something that these two cases have in common, Dean Coral and John Wayne Gacy. And that's something called the handcuff game. And what I want to say to all of you listening is that if anyone ever propositioned you for this game, don't fucking play it. Because the goal is... Coral would put the, back in Houston, he would put the handcuffs on himself, and then he would get out of them. And then he would say to the boy, why don't you try now? Put the handcuffs on. And, of course, it would be rigged, and Coral would have some special way of getting out of the cuffs. 
The boy would put the cuffs on, he couldn't get them off, and that would be the first chapter of his murder, his abuse and his murder. Gacy did the exact same thing with his victims and confesses to it. He would put the handcuffs on himself, whatever. Um, the media rushes to the scene. Um, I think we should maybe start getting into the larger story of what this special beliefs connects these two cases because we're kind of getting into stuff with Gacy that's kind of common public knowledge. Right. Okay. Um, we're introduced to um, a gentleman who appears to come out of nowhere. I think his name is uh, Randy White was his name. And I'm, I, I was watching him be interviewed and I wasn't quite sure who he was or how he was coming to the story. And finally, they identify that he's a kind of amateur detective who was obsessed with the Gacy case. And he began um, corresponding with Gacy from prison. And that really from Canada, really yeah. strange. I thought he was a very odd character. And it's unclear whether this man thinks Gacy was innocent or not from the outset, but he made himself available to Gacy. I think he made Gacy think that he thought that. Yeah. But I don't think that he did. I did not have that impression from him that he yeah. actually bought it. But it was the game that he played with Gacy that got him access and got enormous number of tapes of Gacy actually talking because after confessing to 33 murders and drawing diagrams of where the bodies were buried and being convicted of all of the crimes, right. uh, Gacy actually then started this thing about, no, I didn't do it and I'm innocent and I want to appeal this. And it was like, really? And, and, and Randy yeah. bought into it with him and so kind of played along. Yeah. Um, with the with the, the the game. So we're in the uh, uh, the early 1990s now, and this conversation between Gacy and Randy White is happening for a very specific reason. Gacy is about to be executed, right? And he has come up with He's a doing cover anything story. he can to try and like prove his innocence or something. It was a very strange choice because it wasn't. There was really no doubt about it. Right. Exactly. Um, and so. What he claims is that he was involved with a pedophile ring and that he had given access to his home to these two individuals who were involved in this pedophile ring. And the story he starts to present is they were killing young people to keep this pedophile ring a secret and they were burying the bodies in my house without my knowledge which does nothing to explain how he knew where all the bodies were and how he was able to draw right. them Right. I out. mean, Rob Beast, the kid who went missing initially, mm -hmm. he said he told the police, well, no, I didn't know there was no longer any room in the crawl space. So he bundled him up and threw him and drove down to the bridge and threw him in the river. And come spring thaw, yeah. there he was in the river. I mean, they actually recovered the body of the kid in the river. So, like... Even stuff as extraneous as that matched up to the story that he told him. For, so for him then to adopt this notion that these um, procurers or they were they were like uh, pimps, and they exist. That's I think the surprise of the special. You think Gacy's just spinning this crazy story, and it turns out John David Norman was a notorious, arrested multiple times pedophile who was operating 
these, and this is not QAnon bullshit. This is real. He would have these stacks and stacks of note cards that detailed information about the young teenage runaways that he was sending often by plane to his clients. And the clients were also detailed on these cards. This was the same time period as Dean Coral and John Wayne Gacy. There is a suggestion that both of them were were aware of him and connected to him. And he was he began his practice in Texas. Was he in Houston or was I, he in I, Dallas? He was all fucking over. But I where could, did yeah. where did where was the first bust? I think it was in Texas. I should check my notes. Hold on. Yeah, that's the I think that's the key because like that's the he continues to be in the same kinds of locations and arrested for his right. work as being a procurer, a pimp, whatever you want to call it, for these um Dallas, Texas. That was his first arrest on August 14th, 1973. There was a raid on his apartment. This is John Norman we're talking about. They find hundreds of booklets with the names and pictures of young men. He was busted by a detective named R.C. Nelson, who was interviewed. The boys are underage. The newsletter was called the Odyssey Foundation. He disguised it as a kind of mentoring self-help scheme for young people, but it was really young boys for rent. Uh, the police get 30 names of juveniles who procured for uh, Norman over the years from 30 different states. This is a huge ring. Um, in Henley's confession, remember Henley back from the Coral case? He references this group. He references Norman. Uh, after his first arrest, Norman is charged and released on a $7,000 bond. Again, there's no sex offender registry at the time, so people are not keeping track of this the way they and would today. And he just, you know, goes to a different city. In Chicago, where he ends up eventually in February of 1977, he comes to the attention of a, of a prestigious uh, newspaper journalist named Michael Sneed. Michael is actually a woman. Um, a brochure about underage boys for rent arrives mysteriously on her desk. Someone is clearly trying to uh, bust him to her, to the press. Right. At this point, it's rebranded as the Delta Project. She calls the cops. She asks for the juvenile division. When she asks about the Delta Project, the cop hangs up on her, she said. And she goes on to say that— And I think it's worth noting that after in Dallas confiscating all of the data mm -hmm. about all of the boys and all of the clients, right. the data just vanished. Always. The cards always vanished. And people saw the cards. Like, cops saw the cards. I think Michael Sneed even sees the cards at one point after a bust. And— the cop, there's a New Orleans angle to this case. Like, he gets arrested in New Orleans. He just kept fucking doing exactly the Orleans, same thing. They founded an actual um, Boy, Scout Boy Scout troop, troop yeah. that was specifically to um, recruit and molest Boy Scout age yeah. um, young men. It is really, yeah, it is, um, there, there is this kind of, and there, it is, it reminded me of, I don't know if it still exists. Remember Nambla? Oh God, yeah, those fuckers. The yeah. kind of notion of like, yeah. the, it was not. It was Nambla was the National American Man, Man Boy, Boy Love, Love Association, Association or yeah. something like that. It was it was people who believed that that was really okay. That yeah. that it was fine for you to have sex with children. Like as as Kenny, I think it was who is it who said it on, on South Park? On South Park, but yeah, but dude, you you fuck little kids. Yeah, <laughs> like it's, it's like no, hideous. that's still not okay. No, hideous. like I, I, that's just that's just not how it works. No. Yeah. Um. Anyway, Troop so One Thirty Seven. I'm sorry, is what the Boy Scout troop yes, was called the, in New Orleans. They were yeah. just sort of it was this kind of ongoing kind of manifestation of of these the tastes 
of these particular people. And because the inference that is made by the producers of the, this particular project is that because of the high-powered nature of the people who were mm -hmm. using the services of this procurement organization, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's why the cards kept, by why a lot of the evidence of, of the case kept disappearing. And the, and the New Orleans bust around the Boy Scout troop does bring down two pretty powerful abusers, millionaire Boston real estate broker Hugh Scott Malore, who was 40, and 41-year-old industrialist Richard Jacobs, a one-time part owner of the Patriots. They are arrested as a result of that bus. So some people were brought down, but there were a lot of cards and a lot of clients, and nobody knows where those cards went. In almost every time this happens, yeah. like, because this is... Like what would have happened today would have, it would have been a computerized database, but that didn't exist at this point in time. Mm -hmm. So organizing all of this on note cards right. and keeping people connected by this sort of mailed out newsletter, if you will, um, yeah. of this organization was the way in which they operated. It was just sort of the business model mm -hmm. of this particular yeah. A group of people that whatever, despite their, the fact that their business was hideous, hideous. Um, it does not necessarily, you know, like it, it's not all that unusual. This was how business was done before everything could be in some computer database. So all of this is kind of churned up by Gacy attempting to come up with a cover story to delay his execution. And it seems to me likely that he became aware of them because... Who's the Randy White is the one who begins? No, talking who's to the him? one who? Who's the uh, the the pimp, the procurer? Norman, John Norman. David Norman. John David Norman, and he and actually is busted in Chicago, goes to jail there, mm -hmm. and forms a partnership with another young man who he meets in jail, mm -hmm. whose name I can't remember right off the top of my Paskey, head. Paskey, Philip Paskey, and they actually can resurrect Norman's business from jail yeah. and continue to run it. Paskey gets out sooner than he does, gets them a house. They continue to run the business. Yeah. And then when Norman gets out of jail, he joins Paskey. And, and those are the people that John Wayne Gacy says had access to his house and might be suspect yeah. in murdering these, these so kids. So Gacy uses all of this to get an interview with a Chicago uh, media personal personality, Walter Jacobson. But instead of clearly laying all of this out, he just begins smearing the victims as whores, literally. So none of this works. G Gacy is executed and, in and, 1994. And then demonstrates how he strangled them. Yes, it was just... On camera. It's like, wow, I mean, I'm good. I'm yeah. glad this is the way you bungled this. But there was some sense of validity when the Dallas bust happened. Mm -hmm. The kid who actually was most responsible for the Dallas bust... Mm -hmm. was mysteriously murdered. He was right. stabbed to death, coming home to his, died in his mother's arms. Mm -hmm. You know, like, there was some sense that there, you could make a case for there was retaliation coming from right. Paskey, I think it was, and mm -hmm. Norman, for people who were betraying the ring. Yeah. And then we meet, who is the young man from the ring? Oh, Jerome 
Ilam is his name. I don't know if he he was actually victimized by that ring, but he was horribly abused by pedophiles and human traffickers from the ages of five to twelve, uh, and he has since become an activist to raise awareness of this issue. And um, he describes undergoing abuse that will just turn your stomach and curl your hair. It's just horrible. But he describes the grooming process by which boys from broken homes are targeted, um, enticed, all of it. He just lays it out. It's just, you know, it puts a face to the issue. Um, is that who you were talking about? Or yes, talking that's about? Yeah. absolutely who I was right. talking about. So you get a sense of what the producers are claiming is happening in this. And then I kind of felt like, they sort of, and then the ball just rolled away. Like, I didn't really feel like they then made the case for the Norman Paskey thing. They brought it up. I don't think they believed They made it. a big thing. Yeah. You don't think they believed it? I don't think they believed it. I think they thought it was an opportunity to talk about these simultaneous crimes, but I don't think the producers of the documentary believed that the ring was actually burying bodies in John Wayne Gacy's Or house. that there was any link to John Wayne Gacy or to Coral. The most in, the most moving thing that the documentary said, and, and I think where it kind of ended up was... There's now a challenge underway to identify the unidentified remains in both of these cases using DNA technology. And there was a doctor in Houston presently who was working on this. And there's also an effort going on with a detective in Chicago. And they're saying that because so many of these victims were gay, um, their family members would not step forward at the time to say, I have a missing gay person in my family who might be among these yes. remains. Now they are. And they interview one of those who stepped forward. And that has enabled them to to work towards closing the gap and, and giving a voice to these victims. Um, and I think that was really why they wanted this documentary out there. Because in a little prologue, that's actually how the special opens. It's not really clear what we're talking about at the time, but there's this pathologist in Houston talking about right. a grave, talking about moving remains from an unidentified grave to an identified grave. Right, it's the last yeah. of Coral's victims that she right. is trying to identify, and there are several of Gacy's victims who haven't been identified, and there's a continuing effort to try and actually, to, to close those cases by identifying those bodies completely. But it doesn't, to me, explain the sort of the inference of the um, the ring, the big, mm -hmm. the, the sort of QAnon-esque, if you will, mm -hmm. um, ring of people being sent all over the world. And um, that, you know, like, I, clearly they were in the business of supplying... Absolutely. ...prostitutes, willing or not, trafficking prostitutes, willing or not, to, uh, to people around the country. But this sort of... The kind of, the the way in which it's set up does not seem to follow from the investigation or the outcome of the investigation that they conducted. I just yeah. The question I really wanted to know: Where was, are all the people who were trafficked? Like, uh, and I think maybe that's part of the. Where special. are all the memoirs? Yeah. Maybe where are all the tell-alls? Like the only person we saw was the the uh, Jerome, and mm -hmm. he wasn't actually even part of their. Like if this vast network existed. Where is it? And we can't ask Norman because he died in 2011 in a mental hospital in California. He was arrested in 1987 in Urbana, Illinois, for stealing his roommate's computer. And he was about to go digital. So they got him just in time. He was just insatiable. He was like, yeah. I'm so, it's too bad he didn't have a less heinous, a less heinous business model because 
he seems to have been a very determined man. Yeah. He could have been very successful if he'd picked been not a monster. Anything <laughs> other than being a monster yeah. as his business model, but yeah, it was a very strange it it just it was a strange series because yeah. That was made such a big... I was waiting for, okay, and then here are the people that were being trafficked, and here are the... And they ne- that never materializes. We went back to, as you say, mm-hmm. the trying to... The use of um, familial DNA um, as they used to catch the Golden State Killer and, you know, the new techniques that are being applied to trying to identify these last victims and... That was kind of, uh, you know, that that was kind of where they chose to end it. And I was like, well, then why did you bring all that up? It just seemed really strange to me. It I seems a little. I agree. It I, seemed a little satanic panic to I, me. I, I think that's true. I think this special was less guilty of that than I expected it to be. I was really braced for just full on crazy. But the fact that the cards were seen and the fact that the cards were even filmed by a TV crew and yeah. their investigators were able to use screen caps to go. I think we're entering a period where there are true crime specials that are presenting themselves as the first chapter of something, even if they are a complete product for us to consume. I think it's happening more with true crime podcasts. We're seeing less podcasts that are about we have a full, complete case to cover. As we are seeing, we're trying to churn something up, as we did with the Billy Newton case in those episodes. You know, like we're trying to, people are trying to get the word out there and they're using heavier and heavier production quality to do that. And I think this is an invitation to people who were involved in that ring to come forward and hopefully present credible evidence. I would, I would be very interested to hear. And I am, but I am really surprised that we have not. Yeah. Like the way it was presented as this massive organization flying people around the country and whatever, like how have we gone through the memoir era Mm -hmm. without those books being written? How do I not know of any of these people? It's sort of like my feelings about people who allegedly win the publisher's clearinghouse, then where are they? Yeah. And and I'll, and I'll tell you this. I, I did a little investigation of Jerome Alam, and, and his organization is an activist organization. It's trying to raise awareness of this issue, and it has a very radical approach to it. I mean, it's very, it sounds like it's trying to outlaw pornography, and it's trying to stigmatize all sexually explicit materials as a potential passport to human trafficking. And I think these organizations often get very religious. They get they have a very fundamentalist religion of what is healthy, good sex, and anything that isn't, they connect in this kind of soup with pedophilia. So this issue does go to a weird place with me pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, like I think consenting adults should be allowed to do what they want with each other and should be allowed to write what they want and film what they want if they and do it safely. And I think people should leave the fucking yeah. children alone. Absolutely. Just leave them alone. But, and also, you know, and I think, and clearly this is going to be a longer episode because this one really really got to us on a lot of levels, and it was a very complicated story. Um, We need some realistic reporting on what is really happening on the dark web because we've covered a a couple cases where investigators have said on camera, a lot of what's happening on the dark web is role play. We're having trouble connecting it to actual crimes. We covered the case of the cannibal killer in in Toronto. Um, uh, You know, like we have to... People fantasying out or fantasizing with other people in chat rooms on the dark web is not the same thing as uncovering actual criminal conspiracies that are born on the dark web. I'm sure they exist, but I'm sick of the dark web just being shorthand for a satanic panic like everything out that it's this giant conspiracy because that's how we get QAnon. And of people's unusual sexual tastes being seen as somehow there's something wrong with you. Like, 
again, leave the fucking children alone. Leave the fucking but children alone. But if you and your yeah. partner want to tie each other up and spank each other or do whatever with each other, knock yourself out. Like also, uh, you know, even I'm, if that's what it is, even if you knock yourself out. But like, I also think on the other side of that, we do need a regulated porn industry. I'm not comfortable with vast porn websites that don't have any human uh, moderation or regulations or anybody checking ID. I think that gets really – I think you do set up a platform for young people to be victimized. And I think if Pornhub doesn't want to do the job of checking what content is on their site, they should pay a price for it. You know, I think – I have friends who work in the porn industry and the documentation they do on the health of their models and the age of their models is extensive. It is part of the job. And if you can't do it, it is not the business for you. So right. that's – you know. Yeah, and I think the same thing could be said for YouTube and a lot of other yeah. of the uh, the totally the models is they just simply don't want to do the regulation that they should be doing to prevent the abuses and you get the the bad actors are then free to do whatever the hell they want to. This seemed to sort of tease that question mm-hmm. and then just kind of leave it hanging, which yeah. I thought was kind of bad journalism. I, yeah. I was not. I was put off by that. Yeah. It was like you're alluding to something and then drop. It was very QAnon to me. It was like, mm. I'm going to allude to this big thing that happened, and then I'm not going to present a single shred of evidence that it ever happened. Right. Yeah. You know, yes, there were the cards, and yes, there were the clients, and yes, they were clearly running a prostitution ring, but that is far different than what they were characterizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it was a massive. International, that I people, think, network. Children, yeah. children were just being sucked up off the street and right. flown off to the yeah. the dens of these, you know, horrible billionaires everywhere. And there's some real evidence, hello, Jeffrey Epstein, mm-hmm. that shit like that really does fucking happen. And yeah. the guys in New or- from the New Orleans case actually got busted. And so right. good and good yeah. for them. But, like, I just think taking that... Human trafficking, I believe human slavery is an ongoing issue and has been for the duration of humans, you know, Mm -hmm. existence on the planet. And I think that we should investigate and prosecute it. But I think just sort of randomly charging that and assigning that to different groups of people is is not the same thing as as really doing it. I, I just... I, I just I just found it a little irresponsible. Yeah. And I didn't see it as in any way other than Gacy's effort to try and create a false alibi for his murders mm-hmm. so that he wouldn't get uh, the death penalty. Yeah. Um I there was no other reason for it to be included in this in this yeah. particular there was no there was no link that they really made between these two men. Yeah. Other than this guy, and there was no link to this guy for either of the people. So I just really thought it was mm-hmm. a sensationalized QAnon esque kind of conflagration, which I was not impressed with. Uh, we could do a whole podcast what it was like to watch the details of these cases as gay men. I think we did some of that at the beginning of this episode. It's just like terrific. I just wanted to like the, it, we talked about this also with the Jeffrey Dahmer case, which has come up in connection with the Billy Newton case, which we've been trying to bring more attention to. It's like the idea of being a young gay person and having this be the people people on television people thought of when they heard the word gay. I just could have gone to Dahmer's prison cell and strangled him with my hands. It was just like. 
it, it was such a horrible flashback. So so much of this. I agree Absolutely. with a lot of what you're saying. It was like I said, it was less QAnon than I was expecting, but that's not but saying that's, much. Yeah, um, QAnon light does yeah. not make it any less horrible and irresponsible. I just it was not a responsible thing, and I was surprised to find it on on Discovery Plus. But I probably shouldn't be because no. they have a lot of yeah this sort of unsubstantiated crap. So after doing one of the most challenging stories, true crime-wise, we've done yet, our next episode is going to be about why we love true crime stories or why we are <laughs> obsessed with true crime stories. We went to our party people on the Facebook page. We got a lot of great responses. We're going to be talking about those in our next episode. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.